Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 106. Here is gone. Today's proverb comes from Stendhal. I'll read it twice. The more one pleases generally, the less one pleases profoundly. Once more. The more one pleases generally, the less one pleases profoundly. You only have so much time. And so you only have so much happiness to give others. The question then is how many people you want to divide that happiness between. If we were going to think of it in the most basic terms possible. You have 10,000 happiness points at your disposal over the course of a lifetime. And you can decide who you want to give them to, but you're limited. You don't have limitless happiness to offer other people. And this is because you're not in a limitless supply of anything except God's love. And how much of God's love you receive is somewhat dependent on how much you want. The more one pleases generally, 
the less one pleases profoundly. I think the truth of this proverb begins back in the 17th century, maybe the 18th, at a time when popular culture, as we know it today, was just coming into existence. And popular culture is no longer a thing that we observe. It's no longer a thing that we merely consume. We're all creators and producers of popular culture now, whether we want to be or not. More on that later. Before the 18th century, maybe the 17th, it's hard to say which one, there's really no such thing as popular culture, and this is because there's really no such thing as Christian culture before the 18th century. Before the 18th century, there's Catholic culture, Lutheran culture, Presbyterian culture, but there's no Christian culture. There are no songs or books or paintings that are for Christians in general. And this is because art existed and came into existence in a very different way prior to the French Revolution than it does now. This is one of the big claims that I argue in my next book, Love What Lasts, prior to the French Revolution, works of art are commissioned for wealthy patrons who come from very particular backgrounds, very particular uh, dogmatic traditions. So prior to the French Revolution, there's not paintings for Christians in general. There are paintings that are commissioned by rich Lutherans. There are pieces of music commissioned by rich Catholics. And the music that is commissioned by rich Catholics is Catholic music. And the paintings that are commissioned by rich Lutherans are Lutheran paintings. There's no Christian painting. Prior to the French Revolution, there are many denominations prior to the 18th century. But to a great extent, they all live in separate realms, except maybe in Holland. The 18th century sees Europe secularized. Christians tire of religious warfare. They tire of drawing battle lines along denominational lines. And they agree to not speak about religion. That's kind of this winking agreement that creates modernity. Christians agreeing not to talk about religious differences. They agree to only speak about religious matters where there is widespread agreement or universal agreement. If we agree to not talk about matters that we disagree on, we can all live together. We can work together, shop together, do commerce together. The demand for a secular public square leads to a desire for a new secular form of government. Thus, democracy is born, a form of government that cuts across dogmatic differences. New sorts of art were needed to fill this secular public square, and thus, this kind of generically Christian art is born, art that's not particular to any denomination. It's just generically Christian. And so Christian art is really the first secular art. It's the first non-committal form of art. 
Once there are atheists living side by side with Christians, though atheism becomes the new lowest common denominator and all art has to accommodate an atheist crowd. And it's for this reason that popular art tends to be so generic. When I explain this to my students, there are a few pop songs I often appeal to as examples of the vacuous, vapid, generic nature of popular music. One of those songs is Here Is Gone from 1998 by the Goo Goo Dolls, which goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read the lyrics. You and I got something, but it's all and then it's nothing to me. And I got my defenses when it comes to your intentions for me. And we wake up in the breakdown with the things we never thought we could be. I'm not the one who broke you. I'm not the one you should fear. We've got to move you, darling. I thought I lost you somewhere, but you were never really ever there at all. And I want to get free. Talk to me. I can feel you falling. And I wanted to be all you need. Somehow, here is gone. What is this about? I ask my students that. I play them the song. Put a lyric sheet in front of them. What is this about? Who knows? It's so vague. It's so amorphous. It's so uncommitted to anything, to any idea. It's even uncommitted to any image. I think I've used this song also as an example of bad poetry. There's nothing for our senses to latch on to here. I could read it again, but if you... I don't want to. There's nothing to see. There's nothing to smell. There's no sensations, no textures, nothing here. It's all as generic, as, as free-floating as it can possibly be. So you could listen to this, a Muslim could listen to this, a Catholic could listen to this, a Jew could listen to this, an atheist could listen to this. And you have to fill in all the details with your own life because the song really offers you nothing. It offers you nothing to latch on to. A Unitarian would love this song. It's just not committed to anything. And this is the way of... I want to say most popular culture, if not most, the lion's share of it. Do a survey of people coming out of a Taylor Swift concert and you'll find a profound diversity of religious backgrounds, racial backgrounds, political affiliations. There's just nothing about Taylor Swift's music that appeals to anything deep in people. And for somebody like me to rag on Taylor Swift, I mean, Taylor Swift's an easy target, so I might as well admit that the same thing is true of many of my favorite bands as well. Depeche Mode, New Order, Rolling Stones, Feist. Most of these people are singing rather vague, uh, they're singing rather vague lyrics, vague stories, where the audience is supplying most of the image, most of the 
for lack of a better word, most of the creed or most of the dogma that might inspire somebody to want to write a song. And the, the band itself is not supplying anything definitive because they want as many people as possible to listen to it and to be able to identify with something in it. So the more specific you make it, the fewer the people can really understand it or bear it or tolerate it. Now, I don't mean that, and here's the confessional part, I guess. I don't mean that there's no Depeche Mode song or no New Order or Stone song that cuts me deeply. There are songs by Depeche Mode that I like deeply. Wrong, condemnation. But I'm more sure, I'm more sure of the fact that it's not really these songs that are getting deep into me or are cutting deeply. I think it's actually the case that I like these songs as deeply as I can go, but that I can't go all that deep. So it seems like these songs are getting, you know, below the surface of my psyche, down into my heart. But this is just the music that I've listened to for most of my life, and I have borrowed on its shallowness, which means that when the toes of one of these songs is touching the bottom of the swimming pool of my soul, it's, it's really just the shallow end from, from one side to the other. Like, if a song as generic as Condemnation by Depeche Mode gets you, there's not a lot to get. <laughs> because that song's not that profound. It's better than other popular music, but it's not amazing. Like, listen to it. It's a good song. It's good for pop music. But it's not the sort of thing that you want to be listening to when you're 60 or 70 years old. You would feel really trite to listen to Condemnation by Depeche Mode when you were 70 and say, wow, this song really gets me. Like, who are you that something so basic gets you? Having listened to popular music my entire life, I don't know that I have a sufficiently deep soul for any work of art to really cut into. My soul is barely deeper than the shallow music that I enjoy. Now, there are songs that I sing in church that may, from time to time, cut an inch or two deeper than popular music can. If I really focus and I genuinely prepare for church and I direct all my intellectual power and, and my whole soul towards the task of worshiping God, there are times, rare times, when the cherubic hymn can do something to me that popular music cannot do. But I really have, that's a rare occasion. I really have to prepare 
for hours, if not for, you know, a day or two for worship in order for that, that idea in the true begin setting aside all earthly cares to be a possibility for me. I mean, most of, most of my time in church is spent worried about earthly concerns, earthly affairs, what I'm doing after church, all of the labors of the day. If I can actually put earthly cares aside, the cherubic can both help, you know, it helps me put earthly cares aside. And it shapes my spirit into, I don't know, a kind of posture that's consistent with setting earthly cares aside. So it's kind of a, it's kind of doing two things at once. But that's rare. Like, that's a rare moment in church. That's like a maybe three or four times a year in church sort of thing. That I'm actually able to sing the cherubic hymn and set earthly cares aside. And for it to be something other than wishful thinking, but something genuine. There is a certain alleluia sung right before communion. That just undoes me. If I hear and see my own daughters sing it. It's so sweet. It's so pure, undefiled. And we don't sing it every week at church. But when it's sung and when I'm paying attention, that hallelujah, it's like three seconds long, is one of the highlights of my week. I have these moments in church from time to time where something where you know some light breaks through and I have this from time to time I have this fantasy of a life lived differently where the whole of the church service and the whole religious liturgical experience of Orthodox Christianity is capable of doing for me what the cherubic hymn and that one alleluia only do for me occasionally. Like, what if all religious things had this sort of, I don't know, that they just cut so deeply. But I have, I mean, I have lived in a way that has cut me off from the possibility of the length and breadth of the, of the conventional, traditional Christian experience really having this profound, uh, offering me this profound pleasure, as Stendhal says. I am deeply accustomed to things that please generally. And that, pre- that please broadly. That's most of the things that please me are things that please broadly. I mean, for years now, I have been arguing in favor of old things, high culture, classical literature. But the people who know me best know that I don't have good taste. And I, and I started worrying about having good taste a little too late in life for it to really cut me all that deep. It is, it is rare that something really good 
affects me really profoundly. Most of the things that have affected me profoundly are fairly shallow. And so I'm a fairly shallow person. I may not come across that way. Like if you don't know me personally, I may not come across that way. But if you, if you knew me, uh, if we were friends, you know, you would, you would get this. Like, eh, I know the guy. He's, he's, he's nothing special. Like he's just a, a normal guy with normal tastes. He'd be shocked to look through his closet. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm confessing this, you know, on behalf, you know, I'm confessing this for myself. I think that this is true for a lot of people, though. The people who are raised on art, visual art, books, music, films, that are made to please tens of millions of people would probably admit you know, in a moment of honesty, that they're, that they don't have an ability to appreciate really deep things or that deep things come with great difficulty. That most of the things that please you are rather ephemeral. Now this ends up, this is not just, you know, one of those things that I hear so often from Christians when this, you know, subject comes up. Um, it's just this kind of dismissal. Well, you know, I spend a lot of time on popular culture, but it's never really meant that much to me. Or, you know, it's only entertainment. And entertainment is obviously not that important, and so the things I use to entertain myself are not all that important to me. I could give them up in a, in a minute. The thing about that is that the thing about that line of argument, defending yourself over your shallow tastes, is that if you consistently expose yourself to these shallow things, if popular culture makes up the main of your diet, you end up with a fairly stunted ability to feel. Like the range of emotions that you can feel, the range of emotions that you can understand is rather narrow. And, and this is just because popular culture, the cultural artifact, in other words, when I say popular culture, the reason why I keep bringing it up in relation to the Stendhal quote is culture created by people that aim to please generally. Um, popular culture exists within a fairly narrow emotional range. Pop culture, pop songs, blockbuster films, Tom Clancy novels are never going to ask anything all that unusual of you on an emotional level. Again, an argument from my forthcoming book, most popular culture funnels you into a very few feelings. <laughs> so, I mean, most popular culture wants you to feel romantic yearning, lust, hilarity, amusement, excitement, or the kind of surge, the kind of arrogant surge of power that comes from flattering so-called victims. This is most of what popular culture aims to do. For any emotion, for any feeling that's more subtle than those, pop culture is not going to offer you anything. 
there are hundreds, there are thousands of human emotions. And our capacity to feel these things is just lying dormant most of the time because pop culture never asks us to feel those things. Which means that uh, when we're not engaged in popular culture, when we're out there living our lives, because art teaches us how to interpret what happens in our lives, we're constantly converting the experience of the world into like maybe one of four or five different feelings. Like most things make us lusty or mad because that's, that's most of what pop culture is doing to us. It's most of what it's asking us to feel. Anything more subtle than that doesn't have mass appeal. Pop culture asks us to feel things that are universal, high impact, obvious, which is to say lucrative. Pop culture is never going to confuse you. It's always going to meet you, not where you are, it's going to meet you lower than where you are. The more one pleases generally, the less one pleases profoundly. I think maybe the most obvious proof of this is social media. Because social media only exists to please generally. No one is profoundly pleased by anything on social media. No one ever goes back to anything on social media. Everything on social media exists to be enjoyed once, briefly. Most of the things that are put on social media are made to be enjoyed for about two seconds, if that. That's not really hyperbole. You want to provide someone with two seconds of enjoyment if you're, a, if you're on social media. We don't even have time to get bored with social media before we move on to something else. And that's how it shortens attention spans. Now, I think that this not only corrupts people who consume social media, it corrupts the people who produce social media, too. Everyone on social media knows what sort of pleasure they can offer. And they only want to offer a little because only a little pleasure uh, is fitting for social media, for the sort of delivery that social media can offer, great pleasure is not possible because you're, you're speaking to as many people as you possibly can. You want to try to catch as many people as possible in this net of pleasure before immediately releasing them again. It's not about a permanent relationship. It's about this, like, social media prompts a sort of series of one-night-stand-like relationships with many people over and over and over again. And it trains you to think in terms of numbers. Which is why social media is especially bad for intellectuals. Social media trains people to cast as wide a net as possible. And it's just really bad for intellectual people. Social media corrupts intellectuals, especially mid-level intellectuals. People between 1 and 50,000 followers on Twitter. Social media is kryptonite for those people. Because they can't not think in terms of popularity. And you can watch it happen. You can watch. Otherwise, lucid intellectuals become self-obsessed in real time on social media. They go from observing the world 
to promoting themselves. Mid-level intellectuals do nothing but promote themselves on social media. Social media prompts mid-level intellectuals to become like megachurch human beings. They become seeker-friendly human beings. And they start listening to their fans. And they start defending themselves against all criticism. This is another, this is another problem that emerges with the desire to please as many people as possible. Criticism is inconsequential. If you're trying to please as many people as possible, criticism is meaningless. Criticism is deeply upsetting to mid-level intellectuals with ambition. They can't handle it. They accept mountains of generic, unwarranted praise, but if they get generic criticism, they pounce on it and defend themselves with fangs out. And I think they have to do this because they know they haven't pleased anyone deeply and that they're becoming increasingly incapable of doing so. And when you can't please anyone deeply, you fear that the shallow relationships that you have with so many people will simply vanish when the chips are down. That's why you've got to fight against every sort of criticism. I think you can always tell when someone has gone out of their way to please you. There's nothing about a social media post going out to 10,000 followers that's meant to please you. We're pleased deeply when we know a real sacrifice has been made on our behalf. And there's no sacrifice quite like a sacrifice that's made for one person. We love it when someone does something just for me, when no one else has benefited except for me. That's the greatest sacrifice. That's the greatest sign of trust. The people that please us profoundly are people who know us in all of our particulars. There are things I know my wife likes because she's a woman. Things I know she likes because she's alive in the 21st century. But there's also things I know that make her and her alone happy. And it's, it's those things upon which a real marriage has to be based. It has to be a union of persons. And unless you have a union of persons, there is no profound pleasure. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.